Well, good morning. Uh, so good to have you with us this morning. If you'd like to take out your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read verses 14 through 16 here in just a moment. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We have a number of visitors with us this morning, and I know some of you are on your way to camp. And so just to warm you up a little bit before you get there, I know you're going to have Bible Bowl. They're going to ask some questions for you in there. And so my question, my first question this morning what is the shortest verse in the Bible? Now, oh man, everybody was all over it, right? Jesus wept, John 11 and verse 35. And in our English Bibles, that is indeed the shortest verse in the Bible. Now, if you want to drive your counselors crazy, say, well, but in the Greek it's different, and in the Hebrew it's different in the Old Testament. But in our English Bibles, Jesus wept in John chapter 11 and verse 35. And even divorced from its context. That is a powerful, powerful verse, isn't it? Just the idea, just the reality that our God came to earth and wept. Our God, your God, Jesus Christ, He shed tears. And that means that Jesus understands our tears because He wept too. You don't know what I'm going through. We're tempted to say that to others who seek to give us comfort or advice in hard times. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes we don't know what someone is going through. I made that mistake a number of years ago when somebody was pouring out their bucket about what they were going through in their life and they were having some really tough trials and difficulties. They had suffered great loss. And as they're talking, I just said in terms of their reaction, they were talking about how they felt and the things that they were doing because of what had happened in their life. I said two words that were not the right words to say at that time. I said, I understand. What I meant by that was I understand why you're reacting the way that you are, uh, but I said that, and you know what they said in response to me? No, you don't. And the way they said it, they're absolutely right. I did not understand what it was that they were going through. I, I could imagine, I could try and put myself in their position, but I did not truly understand. But Jesus does. And that's one of the awesome things about our God is that He came and He lived and He suffered and He wept in large part so that He might understand what it is that you're going through. He came and lived as a human being to experience what we experience. And if you're there in Hebrews chapter 4, notice verses 14 through 16 with me. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, it's sympathize in English, but the better word might be empathize. Jesus feels what we feel. He knows what we're going through. He's not one who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go to God. Go to God in prayer. Go to God in confession. Go to God in repentance because He knows what it is you're going through. Seek Him in times where you need help and grace and you can obtain it. You can find it. A very similar thing is said back there in Hebrews chapter 2. Not just that He is this and that this was a good thing, but the Hebrew writer suggests that this is what had to happen for Jesus to fulfill His purpose. 
In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, uh, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus wept. And that means that he knows what you're going through. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he put himself in our shoes. Literally, he became a man called Emmanuel, God with us. And that means that Jesus felt temptation and loss and pain and death and sorrow and joy and gladness and fatigue and betrayal and frustration. All of those things that cause us to weep, Jesus experienced. In fact, the only tears that Jesus never had to shed were those tears of repentance. And this is the famous verse of Jesus weeping where we see that. But did you know that the Bible tells us that Jesus wept on at least two other occasions? Can you think of when they were and where those words where they were. We know in John chapter 11 it was with the death of his friend Lazarus and when he sees the the weeping of Mary and Martha and those that were with him, Jesus wept. But two other times Jesus wept. And while this is the verse we usually think about and we usually study, what I would like to do for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to consider the other times that Jesus wept. Those two other occasions where Jesus is recorded in Scripture to have shed tears, to have wept. And the first one of those is found in Hebrews chapter 5, maybe on the same opening in your Bible. We'll read verses 7 through 9, and then here in a little bit we'll turn over to Luke chapter 19 for the other occasion where the Bible says that Jesus wept. Have you ever thought about what is the most difficult temptation that Jesus felt? We, We know that he was tempted, but what was the most difficult temptation that he felt? Uh, depending on where we're reading in the Bible, our uh, answer might be a little different to that, where we are in the gospel accounts. But, but if we examine his reaction to temptation, what I would suggest, and I think this is borne out even in the verses that we read from Hebrews, Jesus' greatest temptation was what he faced when he suffered on the cross. That connection to suffering with temptation is made in both of those verses that we see there in Hebrews. But think about Jesus' visceral reaction to that suffering on a couple of different occasions. Back there in uh, Matthew chapter 16, I believe it is, remember after Peter makes this great confession and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's almost like Jesus is a little bit encouraged by that. Uh, From that point, we are told in the text, He begins to tell them with a little greater clarity, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to have to die. You're doing good, you're finally getting some of this, so let me give you a little bit more for you to think about and ultimately come to this understanding. But do you remember Peter, the same one who made the confession, do you remember what he said to Jesus when Jesus started telling him these things? He took him aside privately and he rebuked him. And he said, it's not going to happen on my watch. Quit saying it because it's not going to happen. And what is Jesus' reaction to Peter? Do you remember those, that famous phrase, get behind me, Satan? We remember that part. But what he says to him next is perhaps in some ways even more powerful. He says, for, because you are an offense to me. 
You're a stumbling block to me, Peter. I have to do this. Don't tell me that I'm not going to. Don't tell me that I can't because this is hard. And it's a temptation for me not to do it. But I've got to do it. And perhaps we see his reaction in the garden. And this, his greatest temptation, is made even more clear. So read with me there. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. In referring to Jesus, the Hebrew writer says, "...who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear." Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with tears. No doubt that was true on several occasions where Jesus would go and he would pray to his father. But this phrase, who was able to save him from death, seems to indicate that his prayer in the garden before his death is what the Hebrew writer has in mind when he said Jesus offered these prayers and vehement cries with tears. And so my questions are twofold. What was it that Jesus prayed for in the garden? And how did God answer him? Our text here in Hebrews said that he was heard, and that idea heard is the idea it was answered. It was answered because of his godly fear. So what did he pray for, and how did God answer? As we consider his prayer in the garden, turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I think Matthew's account is very clear as we consider these things. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Again, You're asking yourself, as we try to answer together, what did Jesus pray for? For what did he pray? And then what was God's answer to that prayer? Look there in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Drop down to verse 42. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, If this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus prayed for two things while he was there in the garden. He prayed, first of all, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And then secondly, he prayed both times, not as I will, but as you will. And the Hebrew writer tells us that God answered this prayer. How? By allowing Jesus to go to the cross according to the will of God. Sometimes, I would guess probably almost all of us who wear the name of Christ have been brought to tears, weeping over something. Even in our prayer to God, 
Because our desire, our concern, our will for something to happen is so very strong, or maybe our desire for suffering to be avoided is so very strong. But even in those times where we are expressing what our clear will is to God, this is what I desire most in this situation, we have Jesus' example for what our prayers should always be. I express my will. I express my petitions to God. But I always pray, not as I will, but as you will. In this, we too learn obedience through suffering, as the Hebrew writer said. And we are forced to rely on God's greater purposes and plans above our own desires. And it is a hard lesson. One that even Jesus learned in the sense that He experienced it while on earth. But it is a vital part of our spiritual growth and development. Can I always pray in faith, no matter what, your will be done, not mine. Brothers and sisters, that's what being a Christian is all about. Being a Christian is having the heart that says, yes, I have this desire, and yes, I will take it before my Lord in the hopes that He will answer according to what I desire, but I have faith and trust that His will is better than mine. Being a Christian isn't just a matter of Jesus empathizing with us, though He does, as we read in Hebrews. It requires us putting ourselves in His shoes and empathizing with Him and emulating Him. And that's tough, I know, because Jesus felt things that we could not imagine because He understood more than we can imagine. Uh, I remember when I was a teenager, I used to go and stay with my uh, uncle uh, down in, in uh, the valley. He lived in McAllen, and he now lives in Mission. And, and he had this little place with a little trailer over on South Padre Island. And, and so we would go over there, and, and we'd do all kinds of fun stuff. But one of the best things that we did was we'd go wade fishing. And so uh, we'd go wade fishing out into the Gulf. The water was usually perfect. And, and we'd take this little floating bucket with us, uh, two floating buckets, actually. And the bait that we used for this wade fishing is we had these little bitty tiny fish, uh, and what you had to do is, this is kind of graphic, I'm sorry, but you had to rip their heads off, put them on the hook, and then cast them. And I'm kind of like, I know I was a farm boy and I grew up, but I've always been kind of tender-hearted toward animals. And, and I had to tell myself, well, you know, this fish, like, it just doesn't feel pain in the same way. It doesn't have the same kind of nervous system that we do. Obviously, it doesn't have the same uh, awareness that we do. All, it's, it's silly, I know. That's what I tell myself. In some ways, we're kind of like that fish. Uh, we don't have the same perception, the same awareness of everything that was going on that Jesus had in the garden. And when we think about temptation and suffering, our temptations and our suffering are like Jesus's, but in so many ways they fall short of what Jesus felt and what Jesus experienced. Have you ever thought about that? And so, when we try and put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus, we know that we're going to fall short of that, that we can't fully comprehend the pain and the suffering of Christ. But I think it's our job to try. I've suggested, uh, I think on Easter of this year, and the date that's celebrated is Easter, that the worst suffering of Jesus on the cross was the shame of it. 
especially in light of the fact that Jesus had nothing to be ashamed of, the unfairness of it all. There's, there's, something, uh, there's something that we hate about having to suffer in, for something that we don't deserve, right? Uh, I remember when I was in high school on the basketball team, one of the one of the things that one of my coaches uh, in high school made us do is we had to run lines, uh, yo-yos, you know, you got the basketball court and you had to start on the baseline and run to the first line and back and then the second line and back and then maybe the three-point line and back and then half court and back. And you had to do that and you had to do that for the whole court and that's one. And we had to run however many free throws we missed in the game, we had to run that many yo-yos or lines, down and backs, whatever you call them. And I remember feeling how unfair it was because I was a really good free throw shooter and I like, I made all my free throws and Mr. Brickopotamus over there went one for six and I'm having to run all of this because he missed a bunch of free throws. And that's kind of, I think, in some ways the way that we're wired. We're wired for justice. You know, we want things to be fair and to be right. And yet that's exactly what Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus is having to overcome in his temptation and suffering here. It is not fair. It is not right. Jesus was punished when those who were punishing him deserved that punishment. He was punished when he deserved to be praised. He was punished when he was absolutely, totally innocent. He suffered for us according to the will of God. And I ask us to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes for this reason. Knowing that whatever we imagine, whatever we experience ourselves falls far short of what Jesus actually suffered. Can we agree on that? I ask us to put ourselves in His shoes because perhaps, like Jesus, you have prayed and prayed earnestly for something that you desire. And yet, at the same time, you've prayed that God's will be done. And what you desired is not the outcome. May I suggest that perhaps, like Jesus, your suffering in God's answer, your suffering is according to God's will for His greater purposes. Perhaps even like Jesus so that you might be, help, might be able to help someone else. Who could be helped by your suffering? Who can be encouraged? Who can be made aware of their sins? Who can be brought closer to Christ? Who can be saved because of the things you have to suffer? Can you hear the ridicule at the foot of the cross in Matthew 27 and verse 42 if you look down just a few verses from where we are? Matthew 27 and verse 42. They mock Him and they say, He saved others. Himself, He cannot save. As Joe Finch once wrote, that's it, exactly. Saving others meant sacrificing self for Jesus. In order to save everybody else, He could not save Himself. And Jesus prayed in the garden, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. But it was not possible to spare Him and to save us. And so He died so that we can live in the hopes not in the assurance, but the possibility that we might turn and accept Him because that was His Father's will. And ultimately, it was His will as well because that's what the Father needed Him to do. 
Knowing most would not accept His grace, He died for the few who would. And I think there is a great lesson for all of us to learn in this other time when Jesus wept, that our prayer should be like His. Not my will, but Yours be done. God, use me. God, use me even in the midst of suffering. He died for the few who would accept His sacrifice, but He wept for all even those who wouldn't. And that's the second occasion in our second and last point uh, this morning. Jesus wept for Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. Would you turn over there with me, please? Luke chapter 19. Now this is right after Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. And you remember the triumphal entry there yelling and screaming and praising and quoting Scripture and they're laying palm branches down before Him and saying, Hosanna. And all of that seems awesome, but it's going to be just a a week later when all of that kind of falls apart and they shout, crucify Him, crucify Him. And so Jesus looks over this city that He's entering in verse 41. And now as He drew near, He saw the city and He wept over it. Again, this is the third time that we see explicitly the text says that Jesus wept, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, not because God hid them, but because their hearts wouldn't allow them to see For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus looked at this city, and He saw the sin of the people in the city that was ultimately going to lead to its destruction in 70 A.D., And he wept over that sin. Not just over the sin itself, he wept over the outcome of that sin, the result of that sin, that the city was going to be destroyed with those who lived in it. So here's my question as we make application to this other time that Jesus wept. Do we look at those who are in sin through tears? Through tears over what they are doing to themselves that they could know. They could know God. But it is hidden from their eyes because of the hardness of their hearts. And I think there is a very clear and obvious, not an easy application, but a clear and obvious one to be made this month especially. The month of June is Pride Month. And there is an expectation on the part of all who live in this country, at least, of approval and celebration, pride uh, in certain sin. Turn to Romans chapter 1, if you would. Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. And summarizing many sins that led them away from God. And again, Paul makes clear that this is the choice of those who are sinners. They could have known God God was clearly seen in the things that were made, but they hardened their hearts. They chose to turn their back on God. He addressed not just those who commit those sins, but those who might approve of those sins, as he brings that to a conclusion in verse 32, who, 
knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And that's what's asked of us in our country. It is not just that, okay, we allow this to happen, we live and let live, those sorts of things. We are called upon to approve and praise those who are committing this sin with pride. That's what we are called to do. Uh, I, I saw this, you know, it doesn't matter. You walk into restaurants, you walk into stores, especially online. You see it just about everywhere you go. Uh, but this is actually a post from a number of years ago in regard to this, and I think it's appropriately euphemistic for uh, all the young ears in the room. It doesn't matter who you click with, happy pride. And this is from Royal Dutch Airlines, again, from a few years ago. Now look at that picture, seatbelts, right? Um, maybe it's an obvious question. If you were in an accident, which of those seatbelts would you want to be wearing? Unintentionally, they're making a really, a really clear point here, aren't they? It's the exact point that Paul made earlier in this chapter. I, I, I saw and post this image and comment. Ironically, this perfectly demonstrates the importance of understanding that God designed humanity in certain ways. Only one of these works as designed, and using any of the others could lead to our death. And again, that's the summation of Paul's argument earlier in the chapter. If you go back to verse 22 of Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, professing to be wise, and isn't that the call of our day, they became fools and changed the glory of incorruptible God into the image of made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. God is trying to hold them back, but they say, no, this is what I'm going to do. And God says, well, go. If that's what you're going to do, do it. And so in verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And the New Testament is crystal clear about this sin, yes, that it is sinful, and know that there are not exceptions to it. And if you'd like to study more about that, there's a lot more scriptures that we can look at. But my application this morning is not to say, hey, look, this is sinful. My application this morning is, we're going to see this over the next month, over and over and over again. What should your reaction be? And what should my reaction be? May I suggest that our attitude in response to this should be, like Jesus with Jerusalem, we should weep. It should be our desire, like Jesus with Jerusalem, for them to avoid eternal death, what Paul calls the penalty of their error, which is due, that they are deserving of death, verse 32, and he has in mind here spiritual death. It should be a desire for them to avoid that kind of eternal death, 
to turn and live, to know the things that make for peace in their lives. Peace with themselves and how they view themselves. Can you imagine the confusion, the pain of of hating your own body? For them to know peace with others. And for them ultimately, most importantly, to know peace with God. Through weeping, that should be our reaction. And, and I know people have different reactions, and, and not, not all of those are wrong, obviously. Some have chosen to boycott certain places and, and that sort of thing. And, and I call on you to do what your conscience demands in that. Perhaps that can make a difference. But may I ask you to do something uh, along with whatever other reactions you have? May I suggest humbly that every time this month pride in this sin is forced upon you, will you please just say a prayer for those who are involved in this sin? And we're called to do that as Christians. Whether they are enemies of the cross, and that's what some involved in this sin are, they are actively seeking to bring down Christianity or whether they are just lost searching for who they are and where they belong in life and in their own body, and I would suggest a far greater number of those involved in this sin, that's where they are. They're just lost. They're looking for who they are and where they fit. Or even if it is a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling with this particular temptation and striving to overcome uh, overcome it, we are commanded to pray for all three of those groups. Pray for our enemies, pray for the lost, and pray for our brothers and sisters who are, who are experiencing this temptation. And so may I suggest, instead of getting worked up and, and angry and discouraged, make June a month of weeping and prayer. If this is supposed to be brought to mind across our country, then we as Christians should bring it before our Father who is in heaven that He might use us not just to be salt and light in this world, this world, but may He use us to be salt and light in the lives of specific people. That they might turn, come to Christ, and live. We will be better off for it with our attitude, no doubt. I believe that God can work in this way that they might be better off for it as well. Jesus wept. And so should we in the same ways for similar reasons. But also, we should weep in one way He never did, and yet still He commands. As Jesus is introducing His kingdom in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the very second thing that He says, He says, Blessed are those who mourn. We might say, Blessed are those who weep, for they shall be comforted. And in the context, Jesus has in mind a spiritual mourning, a spiritual weeping over our sins. That I weep because I know what I've done wrong and I know that it is an offense to my God and it has separated me from Him. But what Jesus says is in His kingdom, those who mourn over their sins, they shall be comforted because they will come to God in humble confession and repentance seeking Him. And if you're here this morning and you know you need to make your life right with Christ, won't you weep over sin? Won't you confess those sins? Won't you put off that old man of sin and repentance? Won't you go down into a watery grave of baptism to rise to walk in newness 
of life. And if you're already a Christian and you're weeping because you've continued to sin and there is habitual, unrepentant sin in your life that needs to be made right, I know what you're going through. I can actually say that. Because I've been there. And I've had to come out of that. Just like so many here this morning. And we'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. We'll do anything we can to help you. But you have to come. So won't you come now, while together we stand and while we sing. Hear those big boys.